Okay, so this is our uh, ongoing reading of Simone Don's individuation in the light of notions of form and information. We're on part two of the book on vital individuation, which we started last week. Um, and so we're still on chapter one, section one, subsection one of that part. We saw a little bit about his, uh, the way that he introduces vital individuation as a, a slowing down of, of physical individuation. So it's not something, it's not that there's physical individuation and then vital individuation is something sort of on top of it or, or afterwards, but um, the vital individuation um, intervenes as a sort of slowing down of physical individuation. So rather than having, in, in the case of physical individuation, you have um, uh, uh, an event of taking on form, which, um, which, Sort of takes place instantaneously or or at one particular moment and then afterwards you have the the individuated being um which um which just sort of subsists in that individuated state whereas in the case of uh, vital individuation that that individuating process is extended throughout the lifespan of the the living being so it's um it doesn't ever uh, fully individuate. It, it always keeps that that pre-individual element um, and that capacity to undergo further individuations. So in, it's in that sense that uh, the vital individuation is a slowing down of physical individuation. And then we had this weird remark about materialism that he, he, he says that the doctrine that he's presenting is not a materialism. And and then he says because it's because it supposes a, a sort of continuity between uh, physical reality and uh, biological forms without a distinction between classes and genera. So we'll we'll see today a little bit more on this notion of materialism and and what he seems to take that to mean. Yeah, I don't think it fully elucidates the earlier remark, but yeah, it's something we can come back to. But yeah, we'll. Pick up from uh, page 169 from where we ended last time. So I think we're at the, the first full paragraph or the, the paragraph beginning on 169, about halfway down the page. So I'll start reading and we'll go from there. Such are the properties that can be studied in order to characterize the living being rather than the specific form, which does not allow us to go back down to the individual since this form has been obtained by abstraction and therefore by reduction. This kind of research supposes that we consider legitimate the usage in biology of a paradigm taken from the domain of the physical sciences, and particularly from the processes, processes of morphogenesis that occur within this domain. In this sense, it is necessary to suppose that the elementary levels of the biological order contain an organization of the same order as the one that the most perfectly individuated physical systems contain. For example, those that generate crystals or the, or the large metastable molecules of organic chemistry. Indeed, such a research hypothesis can seem quite overwhelming. Custom, in fact, prompts us to think that living beings cannot result from physical beings, since they are superior to the latter due to their organization. Nevertheless, this very attitude is a consequence of an initial postulate according to which inert nature cannot contain a high level of organization. If, on the contrary, we posited right from the beginning that the physical world is already highly organized, we wouldn't be capable of committing this basic error that results from a devaluation of inert matter. In materialism, there is a doctrine of values that supposes an implicit spiritualism. Matter is given as less richly organized than the living being, and materialism seeks to show that the superior can emerge from the inferior. It constitutes an attempt at the reduction of the complex to the simple. 
But if from the start it is established that matter-contained systems constitute systems provided with a very high level of organization, then we cannot so easily hierarchize life and matter. Perhaps it would be necessary to suppose that the organization is conserved, but is transformed in the passage from matter to life. If this were the case, then we would have to suppose that science will never be complete, since this science is a relation of being that by definition have the same degree of organization, a material system and an organized living being attempting to think this system by means of science. If it were true that organization is neither lost nor created, we would conclude that organization cannot but be transformed. Uh, so if it were true that organization is neither lost nor created, we would conclude that organization cannot but be transformed. A type of direct relation between the object and the subject manifests in this affirmation, for the relation between thought and the real becomes a relation between two organized reals that can be analogically linked by their internal structure. However, even if organization is conserved, it is untrue to say that death is nothing. There will be death, evolution, and involution, and the theory of the rapport between matter and life must be able to account for these transformations. According to this theory, there would be a determined level of organization in each system, and these same levels would be found in a physical being and in a, a living being. This is why it would be necessary to suppose that when beings like an animal are composed of several superposed ranks of relays and systems of integration, there is no single organization within them that would have any exterior cause, origin, or equivalent. Since the level of organization belonging to each system is limited, it can be thought that if a being seems to possess a high level of organization, this is because it actually integrates already informed and integrated elements, and because its own integrative task is quite limited. Its individuality would then be reduced to a fairly restrained organization, and the word nature, which is applied to what in the individual is not the product of its activity, would have a very important meaning since each individual would be indebted to its nature for the rich organization that it seems to possess on its own. It could then be supposed that the external richness of the relation to the milieu is equal to the internal richness of organization contained in an individual. Oh no, the French says that the, the same thing. So yeah, that's that's right. He's uh, developing further the this theme of, uh, or, or this um, doctrine that living, uh, living beings or, or uh, vital individuation uh, constitute um, a certain form of organization compared to physical individ individuation or, or physical beings. So there's not something in addition to physical individuation. There's a, a reorganization or a restructuring of a, a physical being that, that makes it into a, a living being. So in a living being, some of the organization or there's this presupposition of the already organized um, matter or the, the physical being is already highly organized uh, and then uh, vital individuation is, is a, just a transformation of that organization. It's not a, a higher degree of organization. He, so he comes back to this idea about materialism, about this doctrine not being a materialism. It's uh, a bit of a strange characterization of materialism because he, he suggests that, or he, he states that materialism presupposes that matter is less richly organized than the living being, so that um, there's this hierarchy between the, the living and the non-living, and he, he's taking that as a characteristic of, re of materialism. I think that is kind of a strange characterization of materialism that I think maybe a, a more standard conception of materialism would be just to deny that there is something like a hierarchy between the living and the non-living. 
rather than saying that there's this hierarchy and then uh, the superior can emerge from the inferior, uh, which is how he characterizes it. I'm not sure who exactly he has in mind when he talks about materialism. You know, it's a, a strange characterization of materialism. Right, and then Angus asked in the chat, um, is he rejecting the idea that there's a transformation between living and non-living? I don't think he's rejecting the idea of any sort of transformation. What he's uh, rejecting is the idea that there's a um, an increase in organization, um, that, that non-living matter is unorganized and then undergoes organization or undergoes a, a higher degree of organization in uh, the living being. Um, he's, he's stating here that the, the transformation from non-living to living is a reorganization, but it's not uh, an increase in the degree of organization. It, uh, it's the same uh, to the extent that there's um, something like a degree of organization, uh, it would be the same degree. Right, and then there's this sort of a side, um, but an, an interesting reflection on um, science, what, what this doctrine means for science, um, so that if we have if we accept that um, organization can can only be um, preserved, it can only be transformed, but it can never. There's never uh, something like a, a a disappearance or a, or an appearance of organization. If we accept that doctrine, then we would also we'd also have to accept um, the necessary incompleteness of science. So science can never be completed. Uh, because the the knowing subjects uh, that uh, uses science to think the world um, would have the same degree of organization as the world that uh, that it's trying to think. So that um, there's no um, uh, there's no way to um, sort of capture the whole organization of the physical world within the living world. Um, because it, they have the same degree of organization. So yeah, that's uh, an interesting reflection, I think, on uh, the, the implication for science of uh, assuming that uh, the living and the non-living have the same degree of organization. And yeah, and then, so the, the last um, paragraph here, he introduces the idea that the a uh, high degree of organization that we find in, say, um, an animal in which we have uh, a whole hierarchy of organs, which are composed of cells, which are composed of organelles, um, and and they all sort of interlock and, and work together in appropriate ways. So this this organization um, is presupposes or, or is built on the uh, pre-existing organization of of matter of uh, a physical entity, and so it's it has this quality of being highly organized uh, because it's already it's integrating things that are already organized rather than uh, having to perform the whole organization on its own. And and so this pre-existing organized aspect of the living being is what he calls the its nature. So na nature here meaning something that is not the product of its own activity. Um, so associated with each individual, there's something that, that is not the product of its own activity, is sort of inherited, inherited by the individual. 
um, and and in this case, uh, that nature is um, already organized, and and so it, it only has to integrate those pre-existing organizations uh, into its own organization. Yeah, and uh, so Alyosha posted in the chat the uh, footnote three in this section, which um, uh, points to um, what Simondon sees as the what is missing from materialism is that it, it doesn't um, account for information uh, or it doesn't take information into account. He he specifies this as, as meaning um, uh, or as saying that this this is not true if um, if we take the physical worlds to be to contain systems in which there are potential energies and uh, relations or um, supports for information. So th this quality of having potential energies um, and uh, information uh, in, in his specific sense of that term, uh, he, he takes that um, as being something that materialism doesn't account for uh, and as being uh, as sort of making materialism not necessary or not relevant anymore. Um, yeah, so again, it's uh, sort of a particular... Um, understanding of materialism, I think, uh, but um, I'm not sure who exactly he has in mind. Okay, so we can go on to the next uh, page or so if someone else would like to read. Um, I can read. Internal integration is made possible by the quantum nature of the relation, the relation between interior and exterior milieus in the individual as a definite structure. The individual's characteristic relays and integrators could not function without this quantum regime of exchanges. The group exists as an integrator and differentiator relative to these sub-individuals. The relation between the singular being and the group is the same as between the individual and sub-individuals. In this sense, we could say that there is a homogeneity of relation between the different hierarchical scales of the same individual and similarly between the group and the individual. The total level of information is then measured by the number of stages of integration and differentiation, as well as by the relation, uh, by the relation between integration and differentiation, which can be called transduction in the living being. In the biological being, transduction is not direct but indirect according to a twofold ascending and descending chain. Along each of these chains, transduction is what allows for signals of information to pass. But this passage, instead of being a simple conveyance of information, is integration or differentiation, and is produced by a preliminary labor due to which the final transduction is made possible. Whereas in the physical domain, this transduction exists in a system as a weak or elevated internal resonance. If integration and differentiation alone were real, life would not exist, for there would also have to be resonance. But then it would be a question of a particular type of resonance that allows for a preliminary activity which requires an elaboration. If we utilize psychological terms to describe these activities, we will see that integration corresponds to the usage of representation and differentiation. Uh, sorry, integration responds to the usage of representation, and differentiation responds to the usage of activity, which distributes in time energies acquired progressively and kept in reserve, whereas representation preserves the information acquired through 
abrupt leaps according to the circumstances in such a way as to create a continuum. Ultimately, transduction is carried out by affectivity and by all the systems that play, that play the role in the organism of transductors on various levels. The individual would therefore always be a system of transduction, but while this transduction is direct and on a single level in the, in the physical system, it is indirect and hierarchized in, living, in the living being. It would be false to think that there is transduction only in a physical system, for there is also an integration and a differentiation. But they are situated on the very limits of the individual and only detectable when it grows. This integration and differentiation at the limits are found in the living individual, but then they characterize its relation to the group or to the world, and they can be relatively independent from the differentiation and integration that take place within the living individual. Such an assertion makes it impossible to understand how these two groups of integration and differentiation are connected. Those that act on the exterior cause structural changes of the ensemble in which they occur, changes which are comparable to those of a corpuscle that absorbs or emits energy in a quantum way by passing from a more excited state to a less excited state or vice versa. Perhaps the relation between the two types of processes is the basis of this variation in the individual's levels accompanied by a structural change that is the internal correlative of an exchange of information or energy with the outside. Indeed, let's note that effort doesn't just have, a, just, doesn't just have motor aspects, but also has effective and representative aspects. The quantum characteristic of effort spanning both a continuity and a discontinuity very clearly represents this integration and this differentiation and the mutual relations of an interior grouping to an exterior grouping. Yeah, so this is um, a pretty dense section. Um, there's uh, a lot that's not super clear to start with. Um, Let's sort of go through it in order and see what we can make of it. So he's setting out, um, he starts with um, talking about integration. Uh, so this is the, what he mentioned previously about how integration of, uh, how a living being integrates the previously organized uh, physical organization. So there's this internal organization that is, um, characteristic of a living being and um and then there's also the relationship of uh the the individual um as an element of a group uh so he, he mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier in, in what we read last week i think um where he talks about how the living individual from a certain perspective can be seen as as just a, a member of a, a group uh, like the species or the um, the class or whatever um, level of the hierarchy you you, you select, um, and uh, you can treat the the species or the the class as um, as the the individual, and then the member of the species would just be um, a portion of or an element of that individual. Uh, so then, so there's this relation. Um, so the, in each case, we have this relationship of integration and differentiation, um, where both aspects are are equally uh, important or equally uh, uh, prevalent within this individual. So within the the singular individual, 
there there's this inter integration and differentiation uh, of uh, organization and then within the species or the group there's likewise a, an integration and differentiation um, and so the, the, there's these two aspects that um, that constitute the organization of a living being uh, whether at the level of uh, what we would call a uh, an individual versus uh, whether what we would call a group, and then so yeah, there's there's this criterion for the level of information or or the the hierarchy of um, of degrees of individuation, um, which is the number of stages of integration and differentiation, and then uh, the relation between them, which is transduction. Um, so we, we've seen this notion of transduction come up uh, in a number of different contexts, um, but here it's playing the role of um, relating the, int the integration and the differentiation to each other. Yeah, so he also, uh, in, in footnote four that Alyosha has posted in the chat, um, there's this, he, he ties the notion of transduction back to the, the notion of re internal resonance or, or, or resonance um, um, and he also calls this active analogy. Um, and we can think back to um, the introduction when he says that transductive thinking um, is what is valid um, about uh, analogical thinking. Um, so it's it's uh, it captures the what what is valid in analogical thinking um, rather than what is uh, invalid. Yeah, that. Active analogy, so the, the couplage of non-symmetrical terms. Uh, so here we, we can think back to this notion um, that we saw in the chapter on, or the, the part on physical individuation, um, that any true relation, so a relation that has the status of being, um, is always between a, um, a continuous term and a discontinuous term. Uh, so that's that's what makes the relation um, asymmetrical or, or non-symmetrical. Um, and that's what gives it the capacity to undergo individuation. Um, right, so transduction here, uh, again, is the, um, in, is the relation between integration and differentiation. And so these two um, sides, the integration and differentiation, are depicted as... Um, chains in the organization of uh, of the living being. So an ascending and a descending chain. Um, so integration would, would be the ascending chain and, and then uh, differentiation would be the descending chain. And transduction um, uh, is, is the relation between these two chains. Um, but it's also, um, as he puts it here, this transduction is what allows for signals of information to pass along those chains. So it's only because there is um, it's only because there is this relation between the two chains uh, that there's something like a, a signal that can pass along the the chain of, of integration and differentiation. Um, yeah, so the the definition of integration and differentiation, he doesn't um, he doesn't give a, a sort of a explicit definition of those two terms, but I think we can understand them. Um, um, we can understand them as uh, 
the integration is this incorporation of pre-existing um, organization uh, that he that he specified um, a, a couple paragraphs earlier. Um, so the living being takes something that is already organized and and transforms its organization. Uh, so that's the the integration side. Um, and then the, the differentiation side would be, um, I think, what we um, what we see a little bit later, um, if I remember correctly, um, the way that a living individual or a living being is capable of um, selecting uh, ends in the way that a, a, a machine is not capable uh, for Simon Don. Um, he, he contrasts um, uh, an automaton with a living being uh, a little bit later. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to get to that today. Um, but um, what what uh, characterizes a living being as opposed to an automaton is that the living being is capable of uh, selecting ends and not just um, adapting towards um, existing en like pre-given ends. Um, and so that I think differentiation we can think of it in, along those lines. Uh, the living being is capable of um, selecting. Uh, various ends that it uh, works towards, um, that it, it um, organizes itself towards. Um, uh, so that's the, the sort of complementary aspect to the uh, integration side, which is the incorporation of existing, um, existing organization. Um, yeah, so um, where were we in the text here? Uh, right, so then, then he introduces the psychological terms, uh, which is pretty weird um, because there's a whole section on um, psychic individuation or a whole uh, part of the book on psychic individuation that we haven't gotten to yet. So he's, he's just starting um, the, the part on vital individuation and then he immediately skips forward to what he's going to talk about in um, uh, in vital individuation. Um, so yeah, it's pretty strange. Um, but then he so he he gives us these um, psychological equivalents for the the different um, uh, aspects of vital organization that he's already set out. So we have these three aspects, the in integration, differentiation, and transduction, which is the relation between the two. Um, and then each of those will correspond to a, a particular psychological function. Um, so we have uh, integration corresponds to representation. Uh, differentiation corresponds to... Um, um, activity um, uh, and then um, transduction uh, corresponds to um, affectivity yeah so this we can we can point this we can connect it um, back to that that sentence um, on the previous page when he he uh, talks about the way that the um, the information um, contained in a living being can be measured by the the number of stages of uh, of integration and differentiation. Uh, 
um, as well as the relation between the two. And then that, re that relation is uh, transduction. Um, yeah, so we can, we can sort of point back towards that, um, that passage. Um, and so I think it, it helps to, like, these psychological terms are confusing in, in one sense because we don't really know why he's introducing um, psychology or, or the level of, of psychic individuation when we're still at the level of vital individuation. Um, but uh, they also, I think, help to sort of visualize um, or uh, uh, sort of picture what's going on because we, we can have a... Uh, something like a, um, a mental image of what representation and activity and affectivity mean in a way that um, integration and differentiation and transduction um, don't really provide that same mental picture. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that can help in another respect, um, even if it's confusing in uh, the other, uh, in the first respect. Yeah, so uh, um, information here. Uh, so we're talking. He's talking about the the quantity of information. So a um, a, a measure of uh, information, and he defines this uh, measurement as the number of stages of uh, integration and differentiation that um, that are incorporated into that that living being. Um, so it's a it's a definition of. Um, how we're supposed to understand the quantity of information uh, in this context. I, I think though it's, it's not, I don't think it's intended um, and I don't think it can be um, applied as like a, a quantitative measurement. Like these stages of integration and differentiation are, are not um, things you can sort of observe and count in the way that you could count, like, I don't know, the number of hairs on the back of a, a a caterpillar or something like that. Um, uh, so you can't just sort of see these stages and count them and then compute what the information content is. Um, it, it's meant to be um, uh, conceptually definitional um, rather than uh, like a, a practical recipe for um, calculating what this quantity of information is. Um, and then there's this bit which again, is, is pretty um, obscure or, or dense, where he says that, um, uh, well, first of all, he says that um, the individual is always a system of transduction, um, but, uh, and so that, so that covers both the physical individual and the vital individual, but the, the difference is that uh, in the physical system, transduction is um, direct and on a single level, uh, as he puts it, whereas in the, in the vital individual, it's indirect and hierarchized. Um, so it, it's, uh, it has these layers or, or levels of pre-existing organization um, in a way that the physical system doesn't. So that is relatively straightforward, but the next bit is the one that um, I have trouble with, uh, so he says that um, it would be false to think that only transduction exists in a physical system, for there is also an integration and a differentiation, but they are situated on the very limits of the individual and only detectable when it grows. Um, 
I'm not really sure what he wants to characterize as uh, integration and differentiation in the physical system um, because he, he had described the, the formation of the crystal as a transductive process uh, in the sense that it's a, a, a structuration of a, a previously unstructured field um, um, that, that uh, progresses gradually across that field. Um, but I, I don't know what the differentiation and integration is supposed to be in the case of the physical system. And, and he says that we should be able to find it there. Um, we should be able to find those two functions in the physical system as well. Um, but yeah, and, and this, this, uh, these two functions are, are only found at the limits of the, the crystal um, or the physical individual more generally we can sort of bracket that bit, that obscurity of what the integration and differentiation are meant to be in the case of the physical individual. We can put that aside for the moment. And then the next bit is um, he states that the this same type of integration and differentiation that occurs at the limits uh, is also found in, um, in the living being. Um, um, but in this case, it, they, those two functions characterize the relation of that living being to the group or to the external world. Um, so there's, uh, within the living being, there's the internal differentiation and integration. Um, and then there's also this uh, differentiation and integration at the limits, which is related to um, um, that living being's relation to the group and to the external world. But we have to find a way to to um, <clears throat> to grasp the the relation between these two forms of integration and differentiation. So the internal one and the external one. So we have to we have to understand what the relation is between those two. Um, and, and so he suggests that um, the ones that act on the exterior, uh, so the the external forms of integration and differentiation, the ones that act on the limit. Um, they, uh, they're comparable to the way that um, uh, a particle will absorb or emit energy uh, in, in a quantum way, so in a discontinuous way um, by passing to a more excited state or a less excited state. Uh, and, and so there's a, there's a relationship between, um, between the, the internal um, operations of, of structuration, uh, the changes of structure within the organism and the uh, effect of that living being on the group and the external world. Um, so there's always a, a sort of complementary structural change uh, um, as well as uh, an exchange of information or energy with uh, the outside world. At the, so th those two sides are, are um, coordinated with each other. And then the last little bit here is again bringing up these psychological equivalents um, to, to the, the three functions that he's introduced um, as, as being the, the characteristics of um, vital individuation. Um, but then he, I mean, this indeed here sort of suggests that this is meant to be a, an illustration or, or a, a consequence of what came before, but the connection is not 
obvious to me. I'm not sure exactly what the connection is here, but um, he goes on to, to say that um, uh, effort as a, um, uh, a state of a, a, living, uh, a living being, um, it doesn't just have motor aspects, so it's not just um, uh, characteristic of the differentiation function. Um, but it also has affective and representative aspects. So it also um, it also has this um, uh, uh, um, transductive aspect uh, to it and the integrative aspect. Um, so all three functions are are present in the case of effort. And then so he describes it as a this quantum characteristic. So the fact that um, Effort has both uh, continuous and discontinuous aspects, or or um, it's it sort of bridges between continuity and discontinuity, um, uh, and um, and this is supposed to um, explain the the connection or the relation between the um, interior. Um, forms or the interior realization of uh, the three functions and the exterior uh, re relation of those three functions. So how those two are, are joined together is through this um, quantum characteristic of, of effort. Um, but again, that's not uh, entirely clear to me or, or obvious what that um, connection is supposed to mean. Well, I just wanted to ask about this bit about the um, the limit thing because I thought I thought that was a really interesting distinction. But I was reading, and I, I don't want to jump ahead. You know, if this is in another text or if it's in you know his book more on psychic uh, psychosocial individuation and all that. But Combs is kind of bringing up this interesting idea of uh, Simon Don Simon Don trying not to fall into another like another notion of substance with mind that ends up in something like the unconscious or consciousness using affectivity and all this stuff but she brings up this notion of the subconscious that i thought might be helpful and i just looking at that section uh, talking about the limit like it, it's in, when, when he says um that it's also found in the living individual but it characterizes its relation to the group or the, and the world but while still being relatively independent from the differentiation and integration taking place within the living individual, is it at all right to think of that as... So if he's saying that there's a kind of differentiation and integration that happens within a living individual, that is that is some kind of interiority to it, would that correspond to sort of the somatic and vital processes that he's been describing? Because I think in these pages he'll come up with this distinction, right? There's somatic and, psych and psychic. Um, because... If that's the case, then it would almost make sense to me that while not completely interior in the same way as those kinds of basic vital processes, that, you know, like um, on page, I think it was 171, he, he described thought and the real having a kind of internal structure rather than thinking of them as, you know, external things being put into relation. So uh, what I'm trying to piece all together here, if we allow for a notion of something like a subconscious that isn't a substance, that is a sort of a, a process of resolving problematics like we've seen with Simone Don, that is its limit with the social, you know, that is the part of living being that is, is the, um, you could say, like the internal 
or one part of the internal structure that is the thought and the real, then that could be sort of that corresponds to the psyche aspect, and then this other. I, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but in in my head, it the the use of something like the subconscious rather than the unconscious might help situate what he's talking about. I, I don't know if that's uh, at all helpful or or off. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure um, whether that um, I'd ha- I'd have to look at um, what. Um, Holmes says about about this distinction between the subconscious and the the unconscious. If I remember correctly, I think Simon Leon doesn't really make use of the notion of of the unconscious um, in the part on on psychic individuation. But uh, I don't think he explicitly refers to the subconscious either. But yeah, I think to the extent that something like the unconscious would be would would ha- have a, an existing structure of individuation or something like that uh i think that's what he would um oppose uh and he would want to view the subconscious or unconscious whichever term we want to use um he would view that as being something like the the uh, associated pre-individual um aspect of uh the psychic individual uh, so every Every psychic individual would would have this uh, associated uh, pre-individual aspect uh, as as sort of part of the remnant of of that process of individuation. So yeah, I'm not sure if that really um, connects with with your your suggestion, but yeah, that's, that's. I guess even if you throw away the terms of conscious, I guess my question is, what is a limit in the living individual that is not something that takes place within it because that's what it sounds like what he says in that sentence that it is independent from this kind of you know transduction that takes place within the living individual it feels like a little bit of just linguistic vagueness maybe we also bracket this but it, it's like he's it, it's like he's trying to define there's a kind of interiority here that and that happens and but there's if you're talking about the psyche i mean it, i i don't think we can use the crystals limit as the same example in the living being because I, I don't think he's talking about you know the body or your skin or something or even just sensations or perception itself as the as that kind of limit which connects the psychic individual with the group or to the world. So it, it, that's why it felt like there needs to be some kind of liminal, whatever it's called or however he describes it, something that is sort of straddling interior and exterior, perhaps in the milieu kind of thing that corresponds to what he's saying yeah um this this bit on the limits is uh another not a hundred percent um clear section on uh, or or passage in in this bit that we just read so the uh, a couple pages earlier he compared the way that in the case of the vital individual there are um spatial and temporal limits in the sense that um the the uh, living individual um, has to have uh, a determined size range and, and it has a determined lifespan um, uh, in a way that the, the physical individual, so the crystal, for example, does not have um, determined limits. So the crystal just keeps on growing as long as it's surrounded by the, the appropriate medium uh, and, and then it will just continue to grow. With There's no... Um, intrinsic limits to the size of that crystal but then so so yeah and then he he states that um the 
correspondent to the the physical individual in the case of living beings is not the living individual in themselves or or the the singular living being but the the group because the the group uh, the group of living beings doesn't have um an intrinsic limit in the way that the the individual does so you can think of like a a beehive or a, a termite colony or something like that um which can be made up of any number of individuals and in principle can can continue to grow in, in size uh, indefinitely and so something there, there's some sort of correspondence between uh, the way that the crystal has this uh, transduction happening at the limit uh, of its uh, uh, of its formation so that it's undergoing individuation at that limit um, uh, there's some sort of correspondence between that and um, the the way that the group is capable of expanding uh, indefinitely. Somehow, the the what we call the individual, what we recognize as the living individual, um, the the member of the group, is inserted into that group uh, in some way. So there there's some sort of uh, the differentiation and integration are are somehow happening across the boundary between the the living individual and the group in which it's inserted, um, and this um, this boundary has to be somehow connected to um, to that growth analog in in the case of uh, the group. Um, but yeah, it's still not very clear to me what exactly that's supposed to look like. That's, that's just as far as I can get with, with those, uh, portions of, of the text. Yeah. I think some of these points will come up again as we continue reading. So we can, uh, come back to the, these questions as we go along. So yeah, would someone else like to read from, uh, 172, the problem of individuation? I can go. Uh, the problem of individuation would be resolved if we knew what information is in its rapport with other fundamental physical quantities, like the quantity of matter or the quantity of energy. The homeostasis of the living being does not exist in the purely physical being, because homeostasis is related to external conditions of transduction, due to which the being utilizes the equivalents in, in, in external conditions as safeguards for its own stability and its internal transduction. In physics, heterogeneous transductive characteristics only appear in the margins of this physical reality. On the contrary, interiority and exteriority are everywhere in the living being. The nervous system and the interior milieu guarantee that this interiority is in contact on all sides with a relative exteriority. The equilibrium between integration and differentiation is what characterizes life, but homeostasis is not full vital stability. The quantum nature of discontinuous action will be opposed to the continuous nature of the constructive knowledge of synthesis in order to constitute this mixture of the continuous and discontinuous that is manifested in the regulative qualities which serve as a rapport between integration and differentiation. Qualities appear in the reactivity through which the living being evaluates its own action. However, these qualities do not allow us to reduce this rapport to a simple consciousness of the discrepancy between the end and the result, and thus to a simple signal. This is what the automaton lacks in order to be a living being. The automaton can only adapt in a manner convergent with a set of conditions by increasingly reducing the gap that exists between its action and its predetermined end. 
but it does not prevent and does not discover ends during its action, for it does not carry out any veritable transduction, since transduction is the expansion of an initially very restricted domain that increasingly takes on size and structure. Biological species are endowed with this capacity of transduction, due to which they can indefinitely expand. Crystals are also endowed with this capacity to indefinitely expand, but whereas the crystal has its whole power of growing localized on its limit, this power in the species has fallen to an ensemble of individuals that grow for themselves, from the interior as well as the exterior, and that are limited in time and space, but reproduce and are unlimited due to their capacities to reproduce. The most conspicuous biological transduction is thus essentially the fact that each individual reproduces analogs. The species advances in time like a physico-chemical modification that would proceed by degrees with a marginally weak recovery of generations, i.e. like active molecular levels on the edge of a crystal undergoing formation. In some cases, an edifice comparable to that of the crystal is left behind by the generations that come after it. Furthermore, the growth of the living individual is an ongoing and localized type of transduction that has no analog in physics. A particular individuality combines with speciated individuality. Yeah, so um, I think I misremembered in this, this passage we just read is what I was thinking of uh, um, a little while um, earlier. Uh, so when he talks about the the relationship between the species and the the member of the species and um, comparing the species um, or the group uh, in its capacity to expand indefinitely with the crystal. Uh, I think this is the passage I was thinking of. Also, there's uh, one point on of translation. There's a, right, so the sentence beginning, this is what the automaton lacks, then a couple semicolons in, it says in the translation, but it does not pre prevent and does not discover ends during its action. Um, in French, it says, but it does not invent, not, not prevent. Um, so the automaton does not invent and it does not discover ends during its action, uh, which I think makes more sense than prevent uh, in this context. Yeah, so, uh, and this is, a, again, something that I mentioned a little while earlier, um, the, the contrast between the automaton and the living being. Um, so in the case of the automaton, it can um, it can adapt to uh, an end that's uh, pre-given. So it can. Uh, in, so I think he's thinking of um, things like the homeostat that um, was it Ashby, I think, who uh, came up with it. Anyway, it's a, a machine that's capable of um, maintaining a certain state, and then if it's um, pushed out of that state, it, it returns to that state. Uh, um, but that that state that it returns to is sort of built into that machine, uh, so it's always going to return to that um, given state. Whereas in the case of living beings, um, Simon Dome says that they they they're capable of uh, not just um, adapting to maintain a certain given state, but of uh, selecting. Uh, something like ends or, or selecting what state they're going to maintain. Uh, so he describes this as a, a sort of invention or a discovery. Um, and, uh, um, and so this is, 
uh, this is what distinguishes the living being from the the automaton is precisely that capacity to discover uh, or to invent uh, a new end to to adapt to uh, rather than just um, accommodating to an existing end. And um, yeah, I think this is maybe uh, a more controversial statement today than it was in uh, 1960 or so when he's writing this. Um, given the the state of uh um uh computing technology at that time and and today um uh yeah so uh, you would have to make a, a stronger case for it than just sort of stating it the way he does that uh, that automata are are not capable of um selecting ends um but uh uh, or conversely, you'd have you'd have to make the case that living beings are not just automata in in the sense that he sets out here that there is something um, um, because I think a lot of the um, advances in computing technology since Simonov's time have showed that you can um, you can simulate something like invention or discovery um, using. Uh, using something like an automaton in the sense that he's describing. So something that is, it just seeks uh, a certain predetermined end. Um, but if, if you have a machine set up in, in a, uh, the right sort of configuration or, or it has the amount, the degree of complexity required, um, then it can give what uh, appears to be invention or discovery. Uh, it, it's, and and so that raises the possibility that what we think of as invention or discovery is ultimately just um, something like this automaton type process, but in a, a very complicated way. Uh, so those those two possibilities, I think, are are ones that are are still um, open today in a way that they weren't in 1960. Maybe maybe to make that more uh, concrete, uh, we can think of. Um, uh, for example, the the uh, computer programs that um, that play chess or go um, that are now uh, capable of beating the best human players, um, they they still rely on um, a lot of brute force, just calculating all the possibilities. Like uh, you know, what's the what's the value of uh, move A versus move B? Um, there's a lot of pretty basic uh, calculations just that they're doing, you know, many millions of them every second. Um, and so they're able to evaluate many more positions than a, a human can. Um, but then in uh, in those games that they play uh, against human players, the, their, their human opponents um, have described the behavior of these systems as, as being inventive and uh, creative and, and so on. Um, so through the the iteration of um, of um, very low level uh, uh, adaptive type processes that are sort of set to um, to pre given ends uh, through through the uh, iteration of those processes many millions of times per second you can create behavior that um, looks from the outside at least as if it, it's creative and and inventive. And so there's um, that I think raises the the possibility that uh, you can, uh, in some sense, reduce creative or inventive behavior to just um, 
some complicated organization of uh, of uh, very simple um, automaton-like structures. So in this passage, there's also um, there's this notion of qualities that he introduces sort of out of nowhere, um, where he says that, so this is on uh, page 172, about three quarters of the way down. Uh, so he says, qualities appear in the reactivity through which the living being evaluates its own action. However, these qualities do not allow us to reduce this report to a simple consciousness of the discrepancy between the end and the result, and thus to a simple signal. So this uh, this notion of qualities is, is not really defined or introduced explicitly. He just sort of uses it without telling us what, what he's doing with it. Um, but so it's clear here what he's rejecting, which is um, an account of uh, um, sensation or uh, qualitative, the qualitative aspect of perception, which would um, uh, identify qualities uh, with um, uh, a signal of a discrepancy between um, the goal and the results of, of an action. Um, and, and so this is uh, like a, a sort of cybernetic um, account of uh, perception where um, you are a cybernetic system, your, your robot or homeostat or whatever would, would have a, an end state that it, it's seeking to um, uh, create or to bring about. Uh, and then it would uh, take in information from its environment and evaluate the discrepancy between the end state and uh and the current state, uh, and then it would act in such a way as to reduce that discrepancy until it uh, is below the detectable limit or the uh, whatever predefined limit uh, of of, uh, of discrepancy is uh, is given. That uh, sort of cybernetic account of uh, equality is uh, is what he's rejecting here, um, or what he's proposing uh, positively is a little less obvious. Um, but uh, so he, in rejecting that cybernetic account, he's not, um, he's not sort of throwing the whole thing out because I think for him that, that does, uh, that does represent an aspect of what, um, what appears in, qual in uh, the qualitative um, or in, in qualities. So quality, so qualities appear um uh, in relation to the living being evaluating its own action, um, so there's there's still um, that uh, that aspect of um, sort of self monitoring uh, is is part of what um, part of what makes up uh, a quality. Uh, I think it's the the bit about ends being uh, being pre given again uh, that he's um, objecting to. So. In, in the quality or in qualitative um, experience, um, there's not just something like a, a measurement or a, a signal um, of the discrepancy between the end state and the, um, uh, the current state, but at the same time, there's something like uh, an invention of an end state or a discovery of an end state um, as, as something to be... Um, uh, to be reached uh, or to be brought about. So there's at the same time. Uh, it, so we have the this measurement of discrepancy, or the signal aspect um, is only ever 
um, given at the same time as the other aspect, the invention or, or creation aspect. One is not possible without the other in in living beings, uh, and and it's precisely because in in automata they they don't have that second aspect. That's that's precisely what differentiates them from living beings. They don't have that uh, invention or discovery capacity. Uh, and then we have the bit that um, we already talked about um, about this uh, indefinite expansion capacity. This this characterization of um, biological transduction um, as being um, as coming through uh, as being brought about through reproduction. Um, so the way that the so in the same way that the crystal um, grows by uh, accretion at its limits, the species grows or the group in general grows through um, the generation of new individuals in reproduction. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, the the sort of correlation or analogy there uh, between the the crystal growth and the growth of the species, and and then he also points out that um, in certain cases, so in in certain living beings, there's something like a crystal that is left behind uh, by uh, the living being. Um, and I think he's thinking of uh, corals as an example of this. So. Corals um, form this uh, uh, reef structure that um, that is left behind um, after the the one individual dies, and then further individuals grow onto that same structure. Um, is that something like culture? Um, I think he would want to. I'm, I'm just trying to remember what he says about this in in the the bit on. Uh, psychic individuation and, and the, the trans individual. Um, I think he would want to, uh, I think he'd want to characterize uh, culture in a different way because it, um, it has something like a, a reactivation in, in every generation. It's not, it's not just something that's inherited uh, in the way that um, one generation of corals inherits the reef um, created by the previous one culture has to be sort of reinvented in every generation. Like you, you, you can't just sort of passively receive culture. You have to, um, you have to act actively um, re, uh, reinvent it in a sense in order for it to even exist. Um, like in the case of a, a, a language, um, if no one speaks a, a language, then it just, it, we call it a dead language. It's not, um, it's not uh, an existing language anymore. Um, and, and likewise for other forms of culture. Um, so yeah, I think in that sense, uh, um, it, this is not exactly the same type of uh, inheritance that's at work. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next bit, um, although there is still a lot that is not 100% clear in the previous, previous passage. Um, so we're on 173, um, the first full paragraph. Life would therefore be conditioned by the recurrence of causality due to, the, due to which a process of integration and a process of differentiation can receive a coupling while remaining distinct in their structures. Thus, life is not a distinct substance of matter. Uh, it supposes processes of integration and differentiation that cannot in any way be given by something other than physical structures. In this sense, there would be a profound triality of the living being through which we, we would find in it two complementary activities and a third activity 
that carries out the integration of the proceeding as well as their differentiation via the activity of causal recurrence. Indeed, recurrence does not add a third relation to the proceeding, but the qualification that it authorizes and constitutes provides a relation between activities that could not have uh, any other commonality. The basis of unity and affective identity is therefore in the affective polarity due to which there can be a relation of the one and the multiple of differentiation and integration. What the qualification constitutes is the relation of two dynamisms. It is already this relation on the lowest level and it remains on the level of the superior affectivity of human feelings. Beginning with pain and pleasure understood in their concretely organic nature, relation manifests as a closure of the reflex arc which is always qualified and oriented. Higher up in sensible quality, a similar polarity, which is integrated as a global and particularly dense constellation, characterizes the acquired personality and allows for it to be recognized. When a subject wants to express its internal states, what it resorts to is this relation through the intermediary of affectivity, which is the principle of art and of all communication. In order to characterize an exterior thing that cannot be shown, it is through affectivity that we pass from the continuous totality of knowledge to the singular unity of the object to be evoked. And this is possible because affectivity is present and available to institute the relation. Each association of ideas uh, passes through this affective relation. Thus, there are two possible types of utilization of relation already constituted by going from the unity of knowledge to the plurality of action or from the multiplicity of action to the, uni to the unity of knowledge. These two complementary paths are joined together in certain symbolisms, like poetic symbolism, and due to this double relation, poetic symbolism can become self-enclosed in aesthetic recurrence, which does not benefit the integration of the entire subject, since it is in fact already virtually contained in the premises of the symbol object to be contemplated and utilized as a mixture of activity and knowledge. The anatomophysiological study of vital processes reveals the distinction between the motor and the receptor organs, at least in the arrangement of the cortical areas and in the functioning of the brain. But we also know that the brain is not just composed of areas of projection. A large part of the frontal lobes takes part in the association between the receptor and motor areas. The neurosurgical practice of lobotomy, which consists in dampening the recurrence of causality, linking integration and differentiation, deeply modifies the subject's affectivity, whereas in principle, this lobotomical intervention perfectly leaves intact the center or centers of affectivity situated in the region of the pituitary stalk, i.e. in regions quite different from those that constitute the neocortex. According to this hypothesis, it would be necessary to distinguish between instantaneous affectivity, which is perhaps indeed localizable in the region of the pituitary stalk, and relational affectivity, which concerns what is produced by the integrative activity and differentiated activity, which could be called affective activity since it characterizes the individual in its singular life and not in its relation to the species. The region of the archicortex would then concern more so the regulation of drives than the regulation of elaborated affectivity. It would manifest in the relation between the subject's tendencies and the qualities that it discovers in the milieu, more so than in the conscious elaboration of this transduction characterized by the activity of the neocortex, which is the affectivity of the individual qua individual. So yeah, there's a lot here. Again, um, the Nick Young question mark meme is appropriate. So yeah, there's this 
recurrence of causality um, is what he had previously talked about with the way that um, the way that a living being um, is capable of monitoring its own action um, and uh, uh, inventing an end for action. In this recurrence, there's uh, a sort of unity of these three um, activities or three functions of the of the living being. So the integration, differentiation, and uh, transduction, which is the the coupling between uh, the the previous two. Yeah. So there's this triality or threefoldness to the living being, um, in the sense that it. Uh, uh, unifies the these two complementary activities of integration and differentiation, and then uh, the third activity um, of transduction um, uh, acts as a, a sort of um, integration and differentiation of the previous two activities. Um, so it sort of repeats itself uh, within uh, um, transduction. And then, so then he goes on to suggest or to state that um, recurrence is not a, a third relation in addition to um, integration and differentiation. Uh, it's the the qualification um, or the um, um, the the sort of realization of integration and differentiation as qualities. Uh, so yeah, there's. Um, this unity between uh, the three activities, um, uh, which is which takes the form of affective polarity. So the in the way that um, affects are polarized um, uh, in and sort of the the paradigmatic example of this is um, pain and pleasure um, are are polarized. But then you also have polarities like light and dark, warm and cold. Um, anything, any um, qualities like that have this um, polarization quality to them or, or polarization um, structure to them. And it's through this polarization or, or polarity that we have something like a unity of the living being. Uh, so the functions of integration and differentiation are unified through this uh, polarization of affectivity this polar polar structure of um of affectivity um actually it, it might be helpful here to bring in some ideas that he he sets out in, in some of his lecture courses that have been published where he he gives maybe more concrete um depictions of what he's talking about here in, in sort of abstract terms so he talks about uh, tropism as um as being sort of the fundamental uh, the fundamental form of perception or, or what perception is fundamentally built on. Tropism is the capacity of living beings to orient themselves in relation to a, a gradient in the environment in some way. So certain bacteria, for example, will orient themselves towards a gradient of sugar in, the, in their uh, environment. So they swim up towards the higher concentrations of sugar um, because they, that's what they feed on. Uh, and then you have uh, phototropic organisms like uh, a sunflower. Yes, exactly. Sunflowers um, orient themselves towards the sun. Uh, so they they respond to a gradient of light in their environment by, by orienting towards the light. And then there's also, there are 
other organisms that have a negative phototropism, so they orient themselves away from light. They, they, uh, if you pick up a rock in the forest or something, you'll see all these bugs that will run away from the light and, and try to hide under another rock. So yeah, the, Simon Don argues that this um, property of tropism is the the, the sort of fundamental uh, activity or or structure of uh, of what is later um, built up into perception in uh, in animals. But it's uh, it's a sort of fundamental property of living beings in general that that then undergoes elaboration and development into uh, perception. Uh, so something along the same lines is is what he's thinking of here, I think. So tropism is always relative to a, a polarity of of uh, qualities. So it's always because it's oriented towards some sort of gradient in the world. Uh, it, it has to it has to be um, relative to the more and the less of whatever quality uh, is being oriented towards. So light versus dark, or or more sugar versus less sugar, uh, or whatever it is. It's in in that sense that there's something like this this qualification that he described here. Uh, I think trope, I think we can read tropism as uh, the equivalent of of qualification, or or as um, at least being an aspect of that qualification. Uh, and then so that so he, he points out that this um, we can see this concretely in um, the reflex arc uh, in uh, in animals, so that there's um, some sort of stimulus which elicits um, uh, a reflexive response, uh, and then there and this reflex arc or this circuit of uh, stimulus and response can be understood in in terms of a quality. So um, y- you can understand it as uh, like a there's a, a pain response, uh, a pain sensation or or quality, uh, and then the reflex action um, of uh, Say moving the the organ that is in pain to uh, remove it from the stimulus. Um, so there's there's this qualitative aspect to the reflex arc. This the same polarization um, is in, is uh, realized in um, a more complex sense in uh, human um, uh, human perception uh, and um, affectivity, uh, and and so he he argues or he states here that um, personality is also um, characterized by these same types of polarities. The same structure of polarization is present both in the the low level um, uh, reflex responses um, of animals and also in high level structures like personality so that it's the same fundamental structure that's realized in both cases. The next bit is um, again, pretty obscure. Um, so he, t- he says here, when a subject wants to express its internal states, what it resorts to is the relation through the intermediary of affectivity, which is the principle of art and all communication. So that bit, it seems okay. Um, so there's a, because there's this shared structure of affectivity, um, it allows for something like an expression of an internal state, um, which can't be... Uh, sort of referred to directly but we can we can elicit the same state in another person or another uh being through um because they have the same affective structure so that that seems okay but then yeah so it's a, in order to characterize an exterior thing that cannot be shown um 
seems weird that it's an exterior thing that cannot be shown rather than an interior thing. But yeah, that's what it says in the French too, uh, an exterior thing. So I'm not sure why these exterior things can't be shown uh, in particular. Uh, yeah, so in order to characterize an exterior thing that cannot be shown, it is through affectivity that we can pass from the continuous totality of knowledge to the singular unity of the object to be evoked. And this is possible because affectivity is present and available to institute the relation. So I think this is, again, just pointing towards the way that we can we can bring about a state in an individual, in a another person, because they have the, the same affective structure um, as we do. So we can uh, sort of point them in the same direction uh, along that polarization axis. But I don't know what this bit on uh, the continuous totality of knowledge, passing from the continuous totality of knowledge to the singular unity of the object to be evoked. I don't really know what that's supposed to be about. And then he says, each association of ideas passes through this affective relation. Um, again, I'm not really sure what that means here. Uh, I mean, I think at one level, we can just say that um, association of ideas is not something like a, a purely intellectual process where you, you sort of pass from one idea to one that's related in some sort of intellectual way. Um, but there's this affective um, element to to the relation between one idea and the next one um but sort of more precisely i'm not i'm not sure exactly what is going on there and then this bit especially is obscure so thus there are two possible types of utilization of relation already constituted by going from the unity of knowledge to the plurality of action or from the multiplicity of action to the unity of knowledge yeah so what these two um, two forms of or, uh, two possible types of utilization of that relation are supposed to be, or what they're doing here, is not clear to me. Uh, there's some sort of passage from a unity of knowledge to the plurality of action, uh, and again from the multiplicity of action to the unity of knowledge, and um, that those two uh, those two passages or those two um, utilizations are uh, supposed to be affective in nature but beyond that I don't know what exactly is going on here um, the next bit um, yeah the, and then and he talks about poetry um, based on this this idea of these two complementary paths um, but it's, it's I'm, I'm really not sure what exactly um, it means when he talks about symbolism here. Um, so in some sense, symbolism is supposed to rejoin the two paths, um, the, the path from unity of knowledge to plurality of action and the path from multiplicity of action to unity of knowledge. Uh, somehow symbolism in poetry is supposed to uh, unify those two paths. Um, uh, and then that makes it possible for poetry to become self-enclosed in aesthetic recurrence. Um, so sort of uh, closed off and, and sort of forming its own uh, world, I guess. Um, but again, I, I don't really know exactly what that's supposed to mean. I, uh, I sort of promised when we were reading the, the bit on quantum physics that this part would be easier to read, but I think that turned out not to be true. Uh, 
this part is uh, at least as obscure as, as the part on, on quantum physics so far. Um, I had forgotten this bit, but yeah, I think it does become more, um, become easier to follow after this first part. And then he, he th this bit is uh, clearer, the next paragraph where he talks about um, the different regions of the brain. Um, so there are some, uh, there are um, some portions of the brain that, that can be mapped onto uh, regions of the body in terms of reception. Uh, so um, there's the inverted homunculus in the brain. Um, if you if you sort of um, if you like uh, map the the human body onto um, onto the brain, it's sort of like a upside down person, uh, sort of with of course distorted in terms of the size of the different regions. Like the the face and the hands are are huge compared to. Um, uh, other parts of the body, different uh, odor responses uh, in in the, and there's also so in addition to these two the the uh, so um, the frontal lobes which uh, the um, and I think Simon uses this term somewhere in this uh, section uh, right the receptor and motor area so the idea was that uh, receptor areas and then uh, and then passing directly to the motor areas instead you have uh, the signal goes into this association area, which does something to it, and then passes uh, a signal to the motor area, possibly, um, not necessarily, um, so that it's not some sort of direct hardwired connection from the uh, receptor area to the motor area that, that is um, operating, but there's some sort of um, uh, intellectual operation or, or cognitive operation is, is happening in these association areas. And, and so he's, uh, these three sort of regions of the brain, he's um, sort of identifying with the three uh, functions that he's, um, that he's set out. So the uh, receptor area would, would correspond to um, integration, and the motor area would correspond to differentiation, and then the frontal lobes would correspond to the transductive activity. And then he, so he points out that in lobotomy, uh, it, lobotomy acts on the frontal lobes, but at the same time, uh, like the effect of lobotomy um, has a, it has an effect on uh, the affectivity of the person. So they, they, the, a person that undergoes lobotomy has this um, change in in their um, affective states and their and in their personality. And so this Simon Don argues this this shows that the there's affectivity can't be regarded as something that is sort of um, a purely uh, primitive function or, or condition that would be localized in the uh, uh, pituitary stock. Uh, instead, we have to think of aff affectivity as having this relational aspect. There's something like a relational affectivity, uh, which brings about the relation between the, the integrative and the differentiative activities. Um, so there's a some sort of affectivity which is uh, comes about in the frontal lobes and not just in the pituitary. So uh, again, th this depends on some specifics of uh, brain science, which has obviously undergone uh, a huge um, development since Simon Don was writing. Um, and I'm not I'm not super familiar with the details of um, uh, whether what Simon Don was uh, arguing here holds up. Uh, I guess 60, 70 years later. I think I think some 
some of the argument about affectivity can be sort of maintained um, regardless of the specifics of the uh, brain localization stuff that he's talking about here. Um, whether or not that holds up today, I think is is sort of uh, it doesn't necessarily determine the the validity of the rest of his argument. So maybe we have time for one more paragraph. Uh, that oh yeah, it's a long one. So maybe one one page or so, uh, and then we'll see how far we get in the discussion. Uh, if someone else would like to read, I guess I'll just read about a page. We would also understand in this sense that affectivity is the sole function, due to its relational aspect, capable of giving a meaning to negativity. The nothingness of action and the nothingness of knowledge are indiscernible without a positive context in which to intervene as a limitation or a pure lack. Whereas for affectivity, nothingness can be defined as the contrary of another quality. As Plato noted, every realized quantity appears to be inserted according to a measure, according to a measurement into an indefinite dyad of contrary and absolute qualities. Qualities become pairings of opposites, and this bipolarity of each qualitative relation is constituted as an ongoing possibility of orientation for the qualified and qualifying being. Nothingness has a meaning in affectivity, because two dynamisms confront one another at each instant. The relation of integration to differentiation is constituted as the bipolar conflict in which forces are exchanged and reach equilibrium. Uh, the, being the being conserves its identity due to its orientation with respect to itself and to this effective polarization of every content and every psychical constituent. Identity seems to be founded on the permanence of this orientation in the course of existence, an orientation which is deployed due to the qualification of action and knowledge. Certain very profound intuitions of the pre-Socratic philosophers reveal how a qualitative dynamism exchanges actions and structures in existence, either with a being or from one being to another. Heraclitus and Empedocles in particular defined a relation of the structure and of the operation which supposes a bipolarity of the real according to a multitude of complementary paths. Affectivity realizes a type of relation which would be conflict in terms of action and incompatibility in terms of knowledge. This relation can only exist on a level of affectivity since its bipolarity allows, allows it to unify the heterogeneous. Quality is transductive by nature, for each qualitative spectrum links with and distinguishes terms that are neither identical nor neither identical with nor foreign to one another. The subject's identity is precisely a transductive type of identity, particularly across the first of all transductivities, that of time, which can furthermore be fragmented as much as desired into instants or grasped as a continuity. Each instant is separated from those that can follow or precede it through time by precisely what unites these instants and constitutes its continuity relative to them. Distinction and continuity, separation and relation are the two complementary aspects of the same type of reality. So yeah, this is one of these sort of stream of consciousness paragraphs where he starts with one thing and then just has like a chain of associations that leads to something completely different, just in a, a long sequence of semicolons. He starts off talking about um, the way that 
affectivity is the the only function that can um, give meaning to negativity as such. So in the case of action and knowledge, there's negativity is only comprehensible in uh, contrast to something positive. Um, so there, you can have a positive uh, context in which there's something like a limitation or a lack of uh, action or knowledge. Whereas in the case of affectivity, um, you have this polarization or this polar structure um, so that um, the negative actually has a, um, a quality, a, a contrary quality to the positive. Darkness is not just experienced as a, a, a lack of light, but it has its own positive quality. Uh, and same thing with hot and cold and so on. And, and so he uh, connects this with um, Plato's doctrine of the indefinite dyad. Um, uh, and then I, I posted in the chat here, there's a, a translation mistake um, so it says every realized quantity in the translation, but it should say every realized quality, um, which is what the the French says. Um, so we're not we're not dealing with quantities here. We're dealing with qualities. Yeah. So there's this indefinite dyad, this opposition between um, the the two um, sides of the polarity. And so there, because of this, there's there's something like a meaning of nothingness, or nothingness has its own quality. Um, uh, it, it, it's able to appear uh, in this relation. And, and then there's uh, this bit on the relation between integration and differentiation, um, which appears as this uh, bipolar conflict. So this opposition between integration and differentiation has this same polar structure. And, and then he, he passes to this, uh, this idea that... Um, an entity conserves its identity um, by its orientation with respect to itself and uh, and the, the affective polarization um, that constitutes it. Um, so it's um, what, what makes up the identity of a living being is not um, some sort of substantial reality, but rather the, the polarization um, that makes it up. There is this permanence um, or this uh, maintenance of this orientation with respect to this uh, this polarization um, that uh, is maintained across uh, the lifespan or the um, the existence of this living being and uh, then there's this bit on the pre-socratics which again I'm not sure what in particular he's pointing to in, in Heraclitus and Empedocles but um, Maybe the the doctrine of the um, the way that the the elements uh, sort of cycle through each other. Um, so in in Empedocles, um, you have the the four elements, uh, and then they they have the associated qualities. So fire is hot and um, and dry, uh, or wait, yeah, is it dry? Uh, I forget exactly how it works out, but. Um, there, there are these qualities that are associated with each of the elements, um, so that that uh, each each element is sort of the the bearer of these qualities, um, and they have this uh, polar structure, this opposition opposition structure. Um, and yeah, Heraclitus does have um, some sort of idea of uh, conflict being the the sort of general principle of um, a being, so that um, beings are made up of some sort of 
conflicting qualities or conflict, conflicting forces. Um, yeah, I think Simon Dolan was right to characterize these as intuitions because they, they're not, especially with Heraclitus, who was um, known as Heraclitus the Obscure, uh, it's not sort of worked out into a, a developed doctrine, um, at least uh, in the fragments that we have available to us now. Yeah, I'm just looking at the time and the uh, the rest of the paragraph we have left here. Uh, maybe we should come back to this paragraph next time um, and uh, and continue the discussion with, with that paragraph, just because I think it would take um, another five, ten minutes to get through the material in this paragraph. Okay, so let's let's end here for today. Yeah, there's a lot to um, sort of go over and, and try to puzzle out in uh, in today's reading. So I think I'm going to have to reread this and, and try to um, see what sense we can make of, uh, of some of the obscurities um, for next time. But uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for, uh, for showing up and for your contributions and see you all next week.